Yeah, let's praise Jesus. Put your hands together. You pray with me. Oh, God, we need you. It is the truth, Lord. We need you more than Lord, ever before. And I attest, I, I confess, I need you for this sermon. Oh, God, I bring nothing to the table. Nothing. And even if I could bring something to the table, I would want no part of it because it would be destructive and counterproductive. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would connect with your word, with our hearts, so that nobody here leaves the same. And we leave closer to you, more surrendered to you, more joyful in you, more hopeful in you, touched by you, oh God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, open it to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. You know, Friday night at Awakening, we talked about how an entire city repented. And so I thought, you know, it would be appropriate to, to back calibrate a little bit and find out how that happened. What was, the, what was the backstory behind a city coming to repentance? And we see a guy who is painfully human. And I'm very encouraged by Jonah. And if you're trying to find Jonah, it's, uh, it's after Obadiah and before Micah. And I'm sure that didn't help anybody at all. So... Uh, Go on and go to your table of contents if you have to, and just find a little page number, because at the end of my sermon, I don't want you to still be trying to find Jonah. Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, and it's a short book, it's about four chapters, and we're just going to be walking through it. But before we go to Jonah, I want to read something to you out of Joel. Joel was a city that wasn't as... Uh, Joel preached to a city that wasn't as fortunate as uh, Nineveh that experienced revival and repentance so that they escaped the judgment of God and received instead the blessings of God for at least 150 years uh, until they, they did indeed receive the judgment of God. But listen to what Joel says. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Tell it to your children, tell, it to t tell them to tell their children and their children to the next generation. Now, before I read this, just let me say that what we're talking about today is, have I gone too far? I mean, can God still use me? Can God still bless me? Does God still have a plan for my life? Or if God does still have a plan for my life, if he, if he can still use me, if he can still bless me, if I can still have a relationship with him and he can still shine through me, well, do I have to settle for plan B or plan C or plan D? I mean, can I still experience God's best? Well, Joel writes, what the locust swarm has left, the green locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. And so we have a picture of just complete decimation, complete destruction, complete barrenness. But we also read that we're going to discover a secret from the life of Jonah that God will restore seven times what the locusts have de devoured. So there's a story about a dad who... Um, went to the drugstore with his little girl 
and bought her a, a, a necklace. It was plastic pearls, and, and she loved these plastic pearls, and, and she wore them. She never took them off. It was kind of like when I was a kid. I had the straw cowboy hat. I never took it off. I even took a bath in it. I lived in that thing. So this little girl had a, had a strand of necklace that was just plastic pearls. She loved it. And so every night, the dad would tuck in the little girl. He would say his prayers with her by her bedside. He would kiss her on the forehead. And then before he would leave, he would say, Honey, would you give me that necklace? And she would say, Oh, no, Daddy, I could never give you that necklace. I mean, you gave me this necklace. I could never give it to you. And he said, That's fine. Night after night, the dad would say his prayers, uh, tuck in the little girl, uh, kiss her. And then he would say once again, Honey, would you give me that necklace? Oh, no, Daddy, I could never do that. So this went on for weeks until uh, finally one night the dad was tucking his little girl in and he didn't ask for the necklace. And instead he just kissed her and he was walking out. And before he turned out the light switch, she said, Daddy. And he turned around and uh, tears were coming down her face and her lips were trembling and she held out the necklace and she said, here's the necklace that you're always asking for. So the dad walked over to the little girl and he took the necklace and He said, I've been waiting for you to give this to me. And he put it in his pocket, and then he pulled out another necklace, a different necklace. And it was a strand of real pearls, a beautiful, priceless necklace. And he said, I've been waiting for you to entrust me with the cheap stuff so I could give you the expensive stuff. And I believe that many of us are holding on to a broken, down, weary, fearful life And God is saying, entrust this to me so I can give you healing and wholeness and restoration and the plan that I have for you. So let's look in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh, and this is the capital of Assyria, which is modern-day Iran, and preach against it because its wickedness has come up from me. Now, Jonah is a prophet, but Jonah hears this word from the Lord, and Jonah does the absolute unthinkable. He does the opposite of what God says. Verse 2, Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Tarshish is about 2,500 miles away from the destination that God told him to go. So we see a prophet who would rather go 2,500 miles outside of the will of God than to go 500 miles, which was the capital of Nineveh. It was 500 miles away from him. He would rather go 2,500 miles outside of the will of God than to go 500 miles into the will of God. Has God ever instructed you? Has God ever led you in a manner where you thought you knew best? And you said, God, I hear what you're saying, but you don't fully understand the situation. Or I hear what you're saying, but that so disagrees with my thought process and my emotions and my perspective that I have to say no. Or God, I hear what you're commanding me, but that so disagrees with what my flesh desires. God, I don't care what you say. I'm going to say no. Well, that was the prophet Jonah. Jonah hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrians. Uh, Jonah's people, the Israelites, the, 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 the Hebrew people were enemies with the Ninevites, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were cruel people. They were known for their violence. That's why God was about to uh, bring his judgment upon them. They were known for their violence. They were known for their immorality. 
when they would uh, attack people, they would, they would murder people, they would slay them, and they would just kind of uh, hang them up as trophies all over to be a testimony to their uh, strength and their fierceness and their conquest. They would even bury people alive in the desert up to their necks, uh, cut their noses off, and they would do it next to ant beds. They would torture people in that way and didn't have a conscience about it. They were cruel. They were immoral. And Jonah said, God, I am not going to go preach to them. Because if I preach to them to repent, because if they don't repent, you're going to judge them. There's a chance that they might repent. And I don't want them to repent. Because if they repent, then you're not going to judge them. And God, I would rather you judge them. Has, has God ever told you to forgive somebody that you would just assume right out of your life than to actually forgive them or to actually bless them or to actually pray for them? I mean, you would just assume be done to them than to spend uh, heaven with them. Jonah was resentful. He was bitter. I mean, this prophet was like Mr. Melancholy. He was so gloomy. He saw negativity in everything. And he said, absolutely not. I'm not going to go to my enemies and preach repentance because I don't want you to bless them, God. I want you to destroy them. I don't want them to repent. So we read in verse 2, Jonah ran away from the Lord. And know this, when God gives you a word, forgive Pray for, bless, do good to those who hurt you, who persecute you, who've spoken ill about you. When God gives you a word, walk in holiness, walk in purity, don't give in to the flesh. When God gives you a word, go to this church, count this cost, make this sacrifice. When God gives you a word, serve in this capacity and you disobey, know that you are running from God. And let's call it what it is. We're running from God. So we read in verse 2. But Jonah, he ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish, 2,500 miles away. He went down to Joppa. Joppa was the port that he had to go to catch the ship in order to go to, uh, across the sea to Tarshish. He went down. That's a significant word. He heard the word of the Lord. He ran from God, and he went down to Joppa. Anytime we ever disobey God, we are always going down in our life. He found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He went down. And when we go down, because we're running from the Lord, do you see this? He paid the fare to get on the ship. Anytime we ever run from the Lord out of disobedience, our lives begin spiraling downward. And we pay the fare. It costs us. Know that. Sin is never without cost. It's not. And when sin costs us, it costs us more than we anticipated paying, doesn't it? And we think that perhaps we're just going to sin a little bit. We're just going to go down a little bit. But the problem with sin is that it always takes us further than we thought we would stray. It keeps us longer than we thought we would stay, and it costs us more than we thought that we would pay. I mean, time after time after time after time, I've talked with people who paid 
absolutely incredible cost for sin. But it didn't begin with that sin that cost so much that it destroyed ministry, that it destroyed family, that it destroyed and robbed their joy and their, and, and, and their lives just absolutely fell apart. It never started with that sin. It started with some, what they thought to be an insignificant, trivial sin, but sin always has this effect. It always carries us further than we thought we would stray. It always holds us longer than we thought we would stay, and it always cost us more than we thought that we would pay. Sin is costly. Anytime we disobey God, it costs us. Can you testify to that? I can. I can raise both hands. I can testify big time. Sin costs. The fruit of the Spirit, peace, joy, love. God's authority of anointing upon our life. Intimacy and godly relationships. Heart-to-heart intimacy and joy. Ministry, family, and I've seen it cost some everything. It's interesting that when we decide to rebel from God, we pay the price. But when we decide to to count the costs and whatever capacity in order to surrender to Christ and follow Christ, God picks up the tab, doesn't he? When we go our own way, we pick up the tab, and it is costly. But when we surrender to God and we follow him, he picks up the tab, doesn't he? As has been said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's support. As, as it's also been said, wherever God leads, God feeds. And that is one of the most exciting things about following Christ and stepping out in faith and obedience is you see just God provide, and he sustains miraculously. Anytime we follow Christ, I mean he provides, and it provides so much faith in our heart, and it develops so much tenderness and trust in God's faithfulness in our life. Like this preacher I had the privilege of meeting once named W.A. Criswell, a great preacher from another generation. He said on his 80th birthday, with trembling hands and tears coming down his cheeks, Jesus is as real to me as the back of my hands. When you live a life of following Jesus and you see God sustain you and bless you and cover you and fight for you and defend you and provide for you miraculously, it does so much to build your faith in God's faithfulness and his ever presence in your life. But, I mean, it does cost something to follow Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, it costs pride, it costs ego. It cost our will, it cost our perspective, the way we think that, that God should have gone about it. We have to surrender all of that. Sometimes it even costs our own definition of good, and we have to surrender our definition of good to God's definition of good, because isn't our definition of good comfort and convenience and ease? I mean, isn't that when we think things are going good? Somebody says, hey, how's it going? You say, good. And why do you say Good. Because things are comfortable and easy and convenient, you say, good, God is gracious, he's good all the time. This is a really sweet season in my life, God is good. And we say God is good because we're comfortable and things are convenient, things are easy. That's our definition of good. What's God's definition of good? God's definition of good is our character reflecting Christ's. God's definition of good is our compassion reflecting Christ. And our convenience and Christ's character in our life are mutually exclusive. And this is where the tension comes into play because we are fiercely committed to our definition of good. 
and God is fiercely committed to cultivating his definition of good in our lives. And know this, God is not going to relent. God is not going to surrender his definition of good. He is utterly committed to our character and compassion reflecting Christ, no matter the cost. And so we've got to surrender our definition of good. And we've got to give up our ease, our comfort, our convenience. And we've got to follow. But only then will we experience God sustain us and God bless us and God's goodness and God's faithfulness in our lives. Amen? All right. So Joseph, Joseph ran, or, uh, Jonah ran, and he went down. Sin always takes us down. Disobedience always takes us down. And then we pick up the price. We pick up the fare. We count the cost. And it costs us joy, tenderness, emotional intimacy, authority, divine authority, blessings, favor, even finances. The list just goes on and on. And it costs us. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship was threatened to break up. And all the sailors were each afraid, and watch this, they're pagans, they didn't know God. They each cried out to their own God, which was no God at all. It was thin air at best, at worst, demonic, but it was no God at all. And they each cried out to their own God, because you guys do know there is only one God. I mean, Mohammed's not away. Well, Mohammed is dead and buried. Mohammed is nothing. Uh, Buddha's not away. You guys know this. I mean, it's not just many paths leading to the same place. Just be sincere in whichever path you take kind of thing. That's nonsense. Jesus said, Jesus Christ, we're Christians. We follow Jesus. We follow his teachings. We follow Jesus. Jesus said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes into the Father but by me. There's no other way other than faith in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross and the empty tomb. That alone is the way to life and eternal life. That's it. And the Bible says if there was some other way, then Jesus is, is he died for nothing. He died in vain. Not only that, if there were some other way, Jesus is a liar. We follow Christ. They cried out to their gods, which are no gods at all. And then watch this. But Jonah had gone below deck where he laid down and fell into a deep sleep. What a contrast. I mean, look at the storm. Look at the severity of it. Look at the intensity of it. Look at how fierce the storm is. And the sailors are terrified. And these are seasoned sailors. These are professionals. They're used to storms. They're terrified. But it's not a natural storm. I mean, there's natural hurricanes that can have winds that are 90 miles an hour. This is no natural storm. This is a supernatural storm. Uh, it's, this, this isn't the result of some... Um, just some natural cause. God caused this storm. And it's like this storm is intentionally beating against the ship. This storm has a direct beef with this ship. This storm is directly opposing, directly picking a fight with this ship. It is not natural. It is supernatural. It's not something these sailors have seen before, and they're utterly terrified. That's why they turn it into a spiritual deal, and they call, begin calling out on their gods, which is, again, no, no gods at all. But Jonah, who is not a sailor is below in the deck, asleep. What a contrast. This is not normal. But we have to cross-reference this with Hebrews 12, doesn't it? Which says that God's going to spank his kids. It's what it says. God is going to spank his kids. Another translation, which is the real translation, that was my translation, but another, the, the real translation says God disciplines those whom he loves. And if he doesn't discipline, then we're illegitimate. So, 
I remember when I was a kid. I, I forget what I did, but I did something wrong. And I was, a, I mean, just like a little kid. And I ran out of the house. My mom chases me out of the yard, out of the house with a belt. I run up a tree. My mom comes after me with a tree, with, with, with a belt. And know this. This storm is God coming after his child with a belt. And know this also. If you can sin and get away with it, if you can sin and not incur some discipline, some storm because of it, you have to question whether or not you're God's child. Because God disciplines his children. And if God hasn't disciplined you yet, yet, as we're going to see, God's giving you time. I've seen parents do it. Okay, keep it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see it. You just keep it up. And the child is storing up wrath for a spanking that's going to be a lot more intense. So if you haven't been disciplined yet, God is being gracious, and he's giving you time to surrender, to turn, to repent. But if you can discipline, if, if you can sin, if you can just disregard God's word and get away with it, you have to question, are you really God's child? So this storm came up, and it's basically God coming after Jonah with the belt. Jonah went below deck, and he fell asleep. And this is an indication of a very sick spiritual condition, where you can go through a storm and not even have the spiritual discernment to connect that storm with your area of disobedience, and you just sleep right through it. And you're not even connecting. I mean, there's friction, there's dissonance, there's chaos, there's, there's frustration, there's loss, and there's disobedience in your life. And you're not even able to connect the storm with the disobedience because you have gone so far that your heart is becoming increasingly callous, which is going to necessitate a harder spanking from God. Jonah went below deck where he lay down, he fell asleep into a deep sleep. I remember after the hurricane uh, Katrina that hit New Orleans, that was back in our botanic garden days, and uh, a lot of the evacuees were over at Amon Carter, and they made makeshift shelters for hundreds, if not thousands, of evacuees. And we were going over there and ministering to them, and they were interviewing, you know, really big-name preachers on TV. Uh, you know, I won't say their names, but they were just interviewing these really big-name preachers, and they were really just kind of playing down the storm, and they're like, yeah, yeah, this isn't an act of God, you know, this is just an act of nature, this isn't an act of God, so when we were in New Orleans talking to the evacuees, they're like, oh no, it's an act of God, New Orleans needed some spanking, New Orleans needed some discipline, and we're going to see, isn't it interesting, isn't it funny how, quote, sinners can have more faith than saints, Watch this. Jonah's asleep. He's not even connecting the storm with his disobedience. He's just sleeping. He's inoculated. He's desensitized to the Spirit of God. In verse 6, the captain went to him, who's a pagan, remember praying to these other gods, and he says, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. He's saying, look, you're you're a preacher, right? You're a prophet. Why aren't you praying? The sinner has more faith than the prophet. He said, maybe he will take notice and we will not perish. And then the sailors each said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do and where do you come from? What is your country? 
from what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heavens, who made the sea and dry land. And this terrified them. You mean you, you worship the God who made the sea? The sea that's like attacking us right now? It's obviously personal. That's the God that you worship? The God who made this sea? And this terrified him. And they asked, what have you done? And they knew that he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them. So verse 11, and the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down? And he said, pick me up into the sea, throw me into the sea, and it will be calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And I think this next statement is very interesting. I mean, they didn't want to. They didn't want to. They're they're not murderers. The sinners are acting more spiritual than the saint. Verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. (laughs) When you're in a storm that's a result of God's discipline because of some area of disobedience, the more you try to get out of that storm, there's something in business called the law of diminishing return, and it really kicks in. It's like the more energy you expend to get out of the storm or make things better, then the less dividends and results you realize as a result of outgoing effort. And this is what happens. This is what happens. When we're in the midst of a storm, we exert ourselves. We call on connections. We strive. We do what we need to do. We try to talk our way out of things. We do this and that, and it gets worse and worse and worse. We try harder. It gets worse. We try harder. It gets worse because we're trying to get out of this storm in the natural when the root is spiritual and the sea is only going to calm when we address it spiritually. So they did their best to row to land, but they could not watch this, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Are you in a storm? I just want to ask you, just just as your pastor and somebody who cares very much about your life and your soul and your family, is there an area of disobedience in your life that could be the root cause of that storm? Is there ongoing dissonance and friction and frustration? Is there an area of spiritual disobedience in your life? And I'm not going to just go through a a list of everything. I mean, the scriptures can be summed up in one word, loving God and loving people well. But there's been some specific things. I mean, are you devoted to the work of the ministry? Are you serving in ministry? Are you tithing? Are, uh, are you praying with your spouse? Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. Are you walking in holiness? Is there a sin pattern in your life? Are you indulging the flesh? Is there any secret compartments in your life? If you're God's, you're not going to get away with it. You're not. And just because you've gotten away with it this far doesn't mean you're going to get away with it longer. It just means that you're storing up a harder spanking. But God is also being gracious because he's given you time to turn. Then they cried out to the Lord, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Know this also about areas of disobedience in our life. No man is an island. No woman, boy, or girl is an island. 
I mean, how many of you have had a family member, perhaps a parent, who was disobedient in some area, and it severely affected your life? You know a lie that they entertained and bought into? It's just me. It's just going to affect me. Yeah, they, they, they meant no, no, no ill will or lack of love to any family, but Satan deceived them, and they bought into a lie. This is only going to affect me. This is my little secret. This is, this is my thing. I'm just going to do this. And it cost severely, didn't it? It hurt the family. It is still hurts you, doesn't it? And in the same way, there is no area of, of, of secrecy, of hypocrisy, of disobedience that doesn't affect others close to us. Jonah thought this was his business, but you want to know what? It affected those sailors' lives very much. And so Jonah became suicidal with the whole thing. But know this too. That is the most selfish decision that anybody can make. That affects so many people. You think, well, this is just my life. I'll just do this. It's just going to affect me. Oh, no. It, It absolutely devastates the people around you. We're called to love, and we're called to act upon decisions and, and, and act upon directions that result in loving God and loving people and drawing people closer to Christ and giving people hope, and uh, disobedience is counterintuitive to that. So they threw him overboard. The storm was calm. Verse 16, at this the mean greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And made vows to him. And just as an aside, in Jonah's disobedience, God's hand was still on him. Because it started out, these guys were praying to false gods, thin air, they were lost. But chapter 1 ends up with these guys praying to the God of gods, the creator of the universe, the king of kings. They're praying to God and they're making sacrifices to God. These guys were converted. These guys became uh, the Old Testament version basically of Christians. These guys placed their faith in the living God. God's hand was still on him. And that tells us this. Though we run from God, though we make decisions uh, that, that, that are inconsistent with God's will in our life, his hand is still upon us. And you're not, if you're his child, you're not going to get away from his hands. And the Bible says God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. This means there is hope. This means if you were called once, you're still called. If you're chosen once, you're still chosen. Romans eleven twenty nine. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Is that not good news? Over the years, that has really encouraged me. Over the years, I thought, you know what? I think God is probably done with me. Here's the litmus test of whether or not God is done with you on this earth. You, you guys have two fingers. Hold up these two fingers. I want you guys to take this test to see if God still has plans for you. Now, now go like this. If there's a pulse... God still has a plan. Because the Bible says God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. The Bible says God's mercies are new every morning. He's just waiting for you to turn. Watch this in verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, some people look at this and say, okay, well, this is just metaphorical. No, this happened. Some people look at this and say, well, the book of Jonah... It's just a poetical teaching. No, this is history. It's scripture. It's inspired, but it's history. This happened. In fact, you can even Google it. In 1891, a guy was swallowed up by a big old well, and they cut the well open, and there was the guy. But even if that did or did not 
corroborate with Scripture. All we need is Scripture to validate itself. God said it. Jesus endorsed it. In fact, Jesus believed that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish for three days and three nights. And he said, in fact, that's a picture of the gospel. Just as uh, Jonah was in the belly of the well for, for three days and three nights, so the son, son of man basically is going to be in the grave. And as the fish spit Jonah out, so the Son of Man is going to come back to life. Now, I want to skip chapter 2 before we wrap up. And I want to go to chapter 3. Now look at this. There is an enormous leap between Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 3. We see Jonah, and now in chapter 3, he's walking. Oh, let me just read. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh, and we see that this well spit Jonah up at the same point of Jonah's disobedience that was the port of Joppa. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And aren't you glad that God is so gracious as to repeat himself to us from time to time? The fish spit Jonah up in his place of disobedience, and God said a second time, Now, go to Nineveh. And preach judgment or repentance. Guess what what Jonah did? He responded. And he was obedient. He was broken. So he went to the great city of Nineveh, about 120,000 people. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Three days to walk through this. Verse 4, Jonah began going a day's journey into the city proclaiming, 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his sermon. That's his sermon. That's it. Forty more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Repent. Forty more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Repent. And guess what they did? This pagan city repented. I mean, not only that, but from the, the Bible says, from the, from the greatest to the least, they repented. I mean, the the homeless folks to the kings and the entire palace, they repented. The king commanded a fast, not only for the people, but for the animals. Nothing's eating. Nobody's eating. No, No animal is eating. We are going to fast. And God saw that, and he honored that, and he relented, and he blessed them. They had 40 days. Just let me ask you again. Is there some area of disobedience and I want to encourage you to exercise the spiritual discernment to connect the storm that you're in with that area of disobedience now are all storms in our life a result of our disobedience no aren't some storms in our life as we've just talked about the result of people's disobedience close to us that we love and and they make decisions inconsistent with Christ's character and compassion and it affects us deeply Some storms are are, are intensified because we are following Christ, and Satan stirs it up and comes against us. Some storms are just the sovereign will of God in order to conform us into the image of Christ because, again, we're committed to our comfort and convenience, and God is committed to our character reflecting Christ, and these are two two mutually exclusive endeavors, and we don't release our definition of good by our own volition, do we? And so God has to pry it from our hands, and Romans 5, trials and tribulations build our character. James 1 and 2, trials and tribulations build our character. So some trials and tribulations are, are, are God 
just building our character. Some are attacks of Satan. Some are the result of people's sin in our life that touch us. Some are the result of our own sin. And some are a unique blend of all of the above. How do you know? How do you know why, why your storm has come into your life? If it's your sin or somebody else's sin or God is growing you, just know this. A child knows why they hurt. A child knows if they're hurting because they have a Charlie horse that wakes them up in the middle of the night and they're growing. A child knows if they hurt because somebody pushed them off the bike and they scraped their knee. A child knows if they hurt because their parents took out a belt and began spanking them. A child knows. And if we will exercise spiritual discernment, we know. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. We know why we're going through what we're going through. But the important thing is not necessarily why we're going through what we're going through. The important thing is, how are we going to respond? So, we saw a really big shift. We saw a really big leap from Jonah chapter 1 to Jonah chapter 3. And now let's look at the bridge. And this is how we ought to respond wherever we're at. Jonah chapter 2. And let's read in verse 1. From inside the fish... Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, and this sounds like a psalm that David would have written, in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me from deep in the realm of the dead. I called for help and you listened to my cry. God always listens to our cry. You hurled me into the depths of the sea, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Watch this. Some say even that Jonah died. It would more closely parallel uh, Christ's death and resurrection. Either way, it's all a miracle. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. Can a man go any further down than this? as a result of disobedience. Can he? I don't know of any. I mean, he went down to Joppa. He began paying the price. He went down into the ship. He was thrown overboard. He went down into the sea. A fish swallowed him up. Seaweed is wrapped around his head. The fish's acidic uh, fluids are covering him. Maybe... Maybe he's dying. Maybe this is his dying prayer. Maybe the Lord preserved his life. But it's, I mean, it smells like the inside of a fish. It's disgusting. The seaweed is wrapped around him. It's tight. It's constricted. I mean, he can't move. He's, he's, he's like he's mummified. And then the fish goes down, down, down to the roots below the mountains. Can anybody go any lower than this? And yet, he turned to the Lord. He repented. And we read, And you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. 
Some cling to worthless idols, turning away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Now that sounds like a prophet, doesn't it? That sounds like somebody who's broken, who's surrendered, who's ready to follow the the word of his God. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah on dry ground. And this is our takeaway. It doesn't matter how far we have strayed. If we will turn to Christ right now, we have not strayed beyond the reach of his unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness for our lives. It doesn't matter how far we have descended into the depths of our own spiritual uh, disobedience and rebellion and insubordination. We have not descended below the depths of God's grace. If we turn to Christ with a heart that's surrendered, God will hear, God responds, and he puts us right back at the point of our initial disobedience. And he says, here's the word again. Now obey. Trust and obey. And God's hand will be upon us more powerfully than we will have ever experienced before. So, would you stand with me, please? If you would bow your heads. You know, in just relation to our subject matter, I just would like to ask as a show of hands, don't don't be ashamed about this, just be truthful. Don't hide. Don't hide from God. Jonah tried to hide from God. Don't hide. As I can testify, as I can relate with Jonah, how many of you are are experiencing some storm in your life because of an area of disobedience to God? Would you raise your hand? All right. Thank you. You can put your hand down. God says... 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. That's not an evangelism verse like get saved kind of thing. That's to the church. That's to Christians. If you confess your sins, I will restore my relationship with you. But you've got to confess. But it doesn't just mean speaking it into the air heartlessly. It means turning from that. But you can't turn from your sins on your own. If you would look at me for a moment, how many of you can testify we stumble into the same stuff all the time? That's why, like David, we've got to say, God, here's my heart, and it is divided, and I pray that you would unite it to fear your name. God, here is my heart. Change it. And the Holy Spirit will give us a new heart and cause us to want to follow Christ. But you have to come to a place of surrender. Like Jonah in the belly of the well. What, what did he say? Okay, I give. I give. I surrender. Has your storm gotten hot enough yet? Has it become intense enough yet? Are you ready to surrender? Just say, Lord, I, I surrender. And confess that sin. And then say, Lord, by your Holy Spirit within me, Give me the strength to never go back and stick close to the Lord. Every day pray that. And God will give you a new heart to not even want to go back there.
so, if you would bow your heads with me again. So if you raised your hand that you're in a storm and you have some spiritual discernment to be able to link that storm to some disobedience, just surrender to the Lord. Gosh, I can't tell you how many times in the life of this church I've tried to manufacture spiritual momentum in the church when, when all that God was waiting on was for me to say in some area, okay, I surrender. I surrender. <laughs> And then like a flood, spiritual momentum comes. What you need more than anything else is to pinpoint that area of spiritual disobedience and say, God, I surrender. So, I'd like to invite you to do that. If you raised your hand, let's just make this our altar. Let's just come forward and let's get our hearts right with God and, uh, and continue to worship. Let's respond.